Good morning. Man, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord? Uh, you sing praise songs like that together with God's people, and you realize uh, in your heart of hearts, this is what we were made for. Uh, this is a taste of even greater things to come. Uh, Revelation tells us uh, that around the throne there are 24 creatures constantly, uh, day and night, praising the Lord. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that is amazing. And one day we're going to join that song, and I'll have a better voice than the one I have now. So, and so will you, which will be all right. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help, uh, as always, as before we go to his word. Father, this is a, a really sweet time of year. Um, whether one has family or not, kids or not, uh, whether one uh, has extra and margin gifts to give or gifts to receive, none of that ultimately matters. This is a sweet season because we stop and we consider that God Most High came near in the person of Jesus Christ. He came in humble fashion and he did so for people who really truly needed him. And so, God, we really rejoice uh, to be able to stop and to pause and consider our lowly condition. All of us, all of mankind as sinners separated from you because of the sin we inherited and the sin that we've happily added to that. And yet you did not leave us in that state, but you were mindful of us and you gave us what we need. You gave the best gift ever, your son, Jesus. God, I pray that as we look at your word this morning again, that we would be touched afresh by that reality. That this wouldn't just be information that drops into our head or has gone over again in a familiar way, but that it would uh, affect us deeply at the core of our being, that we would orient our lives around the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sinful mankind can be made right with a holy God through faith in Jesus. So we celebrate his coming uh, today, and I pray that you would just help us as we study your word, uh, drive it home in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're gonna do something a little interactive uh, again this morning. Uh, just to ask you a quick question, I'm gonna ask you to share with your neighbor, what is the first Christmas music that you begin to play in your house? What's that, when, you know, when it's that, it's the first time, for whatever reason, permission is granted and you can start playing What's the first one that comes out? Would you take a moment and just tell the person next to you what it is? Okay, I trust that you have uh, given and exchanged some information there. I've already told you about our family scenario at home. Most of you know about this. We have to have a Christmas music packed in our home. Otherwise, Christmas music would start too early. I think I would come home from hunting in September and it would be on. That's kind of how early our family wants to get at it. And uh, so you know about our pact. Uh, November 1st, you can start listening to Christmas music with no lyrics, just music only. 
And uh, so typically at that point, we start with, let's say, Vince Guaraldi and the Charlie Brown Christmas theme, although we've discovered, Gus has discovered, there's a few songs in there with words, and uh, those get uh, skipped over. Uh, or maybe we'll listen to some orchestral music, like Carol the Bell, something like this. We kind of just start without the words we want to enjoy uh, Thanksgiving first. But the day after Thanksgiving, all restrictions are off, and we can play any Christmas music, lyrics and all. And so our favorites uh, have kind of been, recently have been Sovereign Graces, Prepare Him Room, uh, or Josh Garrel's The Light Came Down, if you're not familiar with those. Uh, and I don't know if you knew it or not, but this year there was a whole array of new Christmas albums that came out. Uh, here are some of them. Sandra McCracken released one. Sarah Groves, Future of Forestry, and Andrew, Andrew Peterson also revised an earlier one. And so far we like Sandra McCracken's best, so... I'm still trying to see if we can uh, get her up here. That may happen one day. But um, Our passage today uh, is in the book of Luke, so if you want to turn there right now. <clears throat> and our passage looks at what we might call the first Christmas music in the scriptures. Uh, it's in Luke uh, chapter 1, and the song that we find here, as we continue in our series, Songs of the Saints, the song we find here is kind of famously known as the Magnificat, uh, Mary's song. And the, the title comes from the Latin translation of the, the first few words there. Uh, and in fact, what we're going to do over the next four weeks, we're going to sort of finish our series, uh, Songs of the Saints, by looking at the four songs that we find in the Gospel of Luke. So first of all, uh, the Song of Mary or the Magnificat. Next week, we'll look at the Song of Zechariah, also called Benedictus Dominus Deus. And then the next week, we're going to look at the angel's song, which has no Latin title that I'm aware of, so they must have sung in English, right? So. Uh, and then lastly, we'll look at Simeon's song called the Nunc Dimittis. And so that's kind of what's, uh, what's coming up for us. Uh, but what we want to look at here in Luke chapter 1 is, again, we find the first Christmas song uh, in the Bible, or that's what I'm going to, uh, to call it. And what we're going to take from this, or what I hope you hear this morning, is this. That Mary is an example to us, to all of us, of a right response to the advent of Christ. And we'll just work through her lyrics and the content of her song. And uh, look at those, uh, those things through the eyes of how are we and how is our heart responding to the coming of Christ. Uh, let's do a little bit of background in the book, just very quickly. Uh, the, Gospel Luke, the Gospel of Luke is a collection of verified accounts of the life uh, and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is also one of what we call the synoptics, right? Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these three of the four Gospels are called the synoptics because they sort of look at the life and ministry and teaching of Christ with sort of the same view, from the same perspective, and they really kind of mirror one another in uh, the content that is in each of those gospel accounts. They have some differences, though. Each one uh, has sort of bears the personality and, and position of its author. And so we have Matthew, who himself is Jewish. And so as he writes his gospel, he writes with an eye to those who are Jewish in the community. He makes sure to note all of the prophecies that sort of come true in the arrival of Christ and of his life and ministry. And then Mark writes to a largely uh, Roman audience, and so he is very interested in the kingship of Jesus. 
Luke is a Gentile, that is a non-Jewish person. So, and he's also a physician, which is really interesting how it puts a little contour uh, into his telling, uh, his gospel account of Jesus' life. And he seems to be very concerned about the events of power, those miraculous things that Jesus did. And not only that, but the eye that Jesus had and the care that he exercised for those who were oppressed and marginalized in society, the way you might expect a physician to have that same kind of heart today. And then John takes a different approach altogether. He really focuses on the theological uh, implications of, of Christ's life and, and ministry, especially at a time when some false teaching was taking off. But I just want to say this. We are really blessed to have four Gospels, are we not? To have these different vantage points from which to see the life and ministry uh, of Christ. And so Dr. Luke himself was not an eyewitness uh, of the life and ministry of Jesus, but as a traveling companion to the Apostle Paul, he interviewed people, and he collected and verified testimonies of witnesses into what he calls an orderly account. He is, for us, like an investigative journalist. And he uh, opens his gospel, uh, letting us know this, in Luke 1, starting at verse 1, it says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who uh, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So that's just pretty cool that even though Luke himself is not an eyewitness, he serves as a journalist investigating the veracity of these things and compiling an orderly account. And one of the things that's great, I think, about his, his gospel account is sort of the variety of material that he includes. It's not just flat data. It's not just historical points uh, the way a historian might uh, just kind of lay it out there flatly. But his is a very tender human telling of the story of Christ. And one of the ways that I think this is demonstrated is that uh, he has a heavy use of songs. Right in the beginning of his gospel, we find four, which is, of course, what we're going to be looking at uh, for the next few weeks. And so we find, through the eyes of this physician and through his work, we find a very detailed, precise, linear, and yet human and compassionate telling of the life and ministry of Jesus. One of the questions I wonder about is, how did Dr. Luke get this song from Mary? How do you get a song? You know, it wasn't, he didn't download it, right? You know, it's not on an MP3 player. It doesn't have a CD or whatever other, I mean, does Mary write it down? At, at this point in time, when, when Luke writes his gospel, Mary would have been about 80 years old. Does she just recall it? Did she sing it throughout her pregnancy and just, in a sense, memorize it? Did it become something that the church began to, you know, to sing uh, for, for decades after the, uh, the arrival of Christ? So I, I don't really know that. I don't really know how he comes by his song or by her song. Uh, I mentioned to you before that I had a chance to go to San Antonio and take in a concert uh, with Sandra McCracken and All Sons and Daughters. And one of the things I loved about the concert was they would talk about the occasion for this song. Where did it come from? I was going through this, and this is what I began to write because of it. And it just made these songs that you hear and enjoy audibly. I mean, they're nice, 
But then when you hear the backstory, that's pretty sweet. And so here we have not just a beautiful piece of music, but we have something wonderful with the backstory. Uh, and the backstory is given to us here. And so I have asked uh, a couple uh, of people to read for us this morning. I thought Mary's song might sound better coming from uh, the voice of a young expecting mother instead of a middle-aged man. Can we agree? <laughs> we agree. Uh, and so I've asked Jen Barnum if she would read uh, first service. And so while she's coming forward, I'll start at verse 39, which is the intro, and then you get to hear Mary's song on Jen's lips. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as, I, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Well, the first thing that I want to pull out of this beautiful song of Mary here is that Mary sees Christ as a long-awaited Savior. And um, even as she expresses this, she doesn't just see him as a Savior for, you know, the dirty, rotten neighbors, those people over there, you know, the cat people that live next door or, you know, something like that. It's not just for other people. But she sees very clearly uh, that she herself needs a Savior. This baby is God's provision, first of all, for her, for her spiritual condition. Uh, those, uh, there are those who are tempted to venerate Mary uh, or even worship her as a perfect woman or as a saint. But here the text is clear. Mary sees herself as a sinner in need of a Savior. And she rejoices in the mercy that she is shown here by God. Not just that she would have a baby, but that this baby would carry her sins. Uh, additionally, she's under no misconception that this child is just to be an earthly king or an earthly leader. But much more than that, she knows by the supernatural conception, and she knows by the explicit message of the angel that she carries in her womb the Son of God. Uh, talk about a humbling calling. <laughs> Talk about a heavy responsibility to know that this one that's going to be born is not just going to depend on you for a while, but all of the world will have to depend upon him. And she herself is going to give birth to her Savior. That, that is a shocking thing. I mean, that ought to hit you every year. Uh, I, I hope that it would. Um, 
maybe one of the most interesting things about this song is that it's, uh, it's not entirely a new song. It, once again, it's almost a cover of a previous song. We keep seeing this in Scripture, don't we? Uh, her song actually is very reminiscent of Hannah's song. If you're familiar with the Old Testament uh, person Hannah, when she gave birth to Samuel the prophet, uh, there are some remarkable parallels. In fact, the structure, if you lay them side by side, if you're interested in doing this, this is in 1 Samuel 2. This week you could just look at Mary's song right alongside Hannah's song and you can see that the structure is almost exactly the same as they move through the material uh, that they sing about. Um, And it seems to me that as Mary is reflecting on this gift that God has given to her, this entrustment, uh, and sort of even thinking about the idea that this child of hers will be given for the need and the sake of others, and that in a sense as a mother, she will lose this child, not just to maturity and moving out of the home, but she will lose him. His life will be given for her and for others. As she seems to reflect upon these kinds of things, it's, it's as though her mind casts backwards and she remembers the story, a biblical story of, of Hannah. Uh, and so one of the things that this sort of tells me about Mary is that Mary knew her Bible. Uh, not only does she borrow the structure of Hannah's song uh, and using some of the same lyrics, but virtually every phrase in her own song comes off the pages of Scripture before. And so you can almost see at least one of the reasons that God would choose such a person uh, to carry uh, his beloved child. Uh, She is one who has been saturated and shaped by the Word of God. And now... Physically, she will be saturated and literally shaped by the living word of God. It's a pretty amazing thing. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. And here, I think Mary declares one of the truly encouraging truths about God in the scriptures, and that is he is mindful of our condition. Our God truly knows us. He is not one who is out of touch or unaware, who doesn't know our circumstances or doesn't know our need or knows and doesn't care. Uh, Jesus himself teaches later uh, in his adult teaching ministry that God knows when the sparrow falls to the ground. The sparrow one of the seemingly most insignificant little creatures in abundance, so many you could hardly notice a missing one that God knows. And goes on to say, are you not much more valuable than they? Um, There was a reality TV show on for a while. You might be familiar with it. It was called Undercover Boss. Remember this? I don't know if it's still playing or not. It's probably played its way out, but um, I've always kind of appreciated the setup. Here, a CEO or business owner uh, someone who's kind of a big wig, uh, of course, would show up on the job site in sort of a, uh, a lowly menial uh, area of, of the workforce and sort of work alongside people in, in disguise. And uh, it was kind of a funny setup because often what would happen is it would reveal uh, how people felt about their work or how they felt about their boss and would typically show that this boss is really out of touch with how things happen down here. And just to the contrast of that, Mary acknowledges that God is not one who is out of touch with the lives of his people. 
He sees their every need. He sees them even in their humble estate. And there's another historical bi- biblical example of this. We saw this in the life uh, of Hannah. If, you knew, if you're familiar with Abraham and Sarah and, uh, and the servant uh, to Sarah, she is, uh, Abraham and Sarah are not presented as perfect people in the scriptures, are they? <laughs> uh, in fact, I, I think sometimes when we see God use the phrase that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we think he's name dropping, but that couldn't be further from the truth, as those guys are scoundrels most of the time. I think God is saying, I'm gracious enough to be the God even of those people. But nevertheless, uh, they have this servant, uh, Hagar, I said Hannah, excuse me, Hagar, and she's mistreated by Sarah. And she runs away, and she goes out into the desert, and she cries out to the Lord, and we're told that the angel of the Lord comes and ministers to her. And she, in that instance, confers a name upon God, El Roy, meaning God who sees. God who sees me. And so God is not a distant or uncaring or unseeing entity, but rather he is one who knows. And Mary rejoices that he is mindful of her condition. He sees, he hears, he knows, and he cares. He's mindful. And something that we can take away from that is in each and every stage of our life, there may be some things that you're nursing along that you think nobody knows this. But the reality is that God knows. He knows the secret wounds that you are working through. He knows about the abuse that you received and at certain times of the year wakes up afresh. He knows about the fears that are lurking, not just in the back of your mind, but in the front of your being. He knows when your finances don't quite reach. He knows about the temptations that come looking for you. He knows all about the temptations that all too often win. He knows about the insecurities that we battle. And he knows about your unmet desires. And above and through all of that, more than that, God knows our need for forgiveness, each and every person. Not just some. Not just the neighbors, but ours. Our need for forgiveness. And he has made provision in Jesus Christ. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So we learn that he has done great things. And I, it's just easy for that phrase to just fall out of the mouth and have almost no significance or consequence. And just to just let it be there as truth on a page. I think one of the temptations for modern, the modern American culture is to live utterly distracted, constantly entertained and amused, and with our attention drawn away. Uh, Neil Postman wrote an excellent book, I think back in the 80s, and his title uh, is worth the price of the book alone, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Do you remember that one? And he was writing at the time about the dangers of television. Can you imagine what he would say now uh, when he would consider internet, social media, smartphones, and streaming services. Now, uh, I think we all know these things are not inherently bad. They're culturally neutral. Uh, they're morally neutral. They're great tools and aids, or they can be, but they can also facilitate incredible distraction and detachment. And I think we live in a world that is permeated by detachment right now just amused and entertained, skipping along the surface of life and not ever really plumbing the depths of what matters in life, 
What constitutes a good life? Not just making it to the end of the paycheck. There's a great expression you've probably heard before. It's this, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I think that is one of his great tactics in our age is to simply fill us with distraction and entertainment. And in most cases, that's simply enough because all one needs to do is be distracted away from their need for Christ and he has accomplished a victory and has a victim. Every single person walking the earth needs to turn in saving faith to Jesus Christ. Every person needs to repent of sin and to trust in him as a sacrifice for sin. If you think about this, maybe for those of you who are Christians, you've already made that, de- that decision for Christ, but we can still live in that dis- distracted and sort of disinterested way of being. Think about this. How much time do you have where you are simply quiet and alone and engaging the Lord? I mean, like, put a number on it. How many minutes a day is it? Or maybe I should say, how many minutes a week? Do we ever draw near to the Lord? Isn't there always something in the background? Music, a podcast, we're on an exercise bike, we're, we're doing whatever. We have really lost the ability to come before the Lord with all of our faculties fixed upon Him and to rejoice in the great things that He has done. We're too busy skipping around in these distractions in our lives. Now, uh, Mary, granted Mary here has just been visited by an angel, being told she'll give birth to the Son of God, who will save people from their sin. He'll sit forever on the throne. And I suspect that any of us would hit the pause button in whatever we're doing if given such a message, especially the fellas, because that would be wild. But the question I want to ask is this. Have we become so familiar as Christians, with the provision of God that we fail to recognize its greatness and thank Him for it. How long has it been since you truly felt thankful for Christ? So Mary is an example for us. Her thoughts, her meditations, her heart, she directs us in the way that our heart ought to be directed to the Lord. Whether we're someone who has never responded in saving faith or whether we've been a Christian for a long time, that have lost the enjoyment of what Christ has done for us. She goes on, she says, holy is his name. And I've taught a lot about um, uh, holiness. So many of you probably know this, but uh, we tend to think about it as without sin, without impurity. And that's true. Uh, But when Mary remarks about the holiness of God here, she is uh, making a greater statement than just that he is without impurity. She is saying that he is set apart He is altogether other. There's no one like our God. And she says that because of the great things he is doing in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's not a deity in the mind of mankind who offers salvation for sinners at his own cost. Except our God. Uh, I think it was John Stott who said this. Uh, He's an author and theologian that the symbol of every other world religion is that of the scales, of weighing things out. Did I do more good than bad? That's the symbol, essentially, of every other uh, world religion and its teaching. But the symbol of Christianity is the cross, where God says, I've got your sin. In my mercy, 
in my grace, in my love for you, I'm going to cover your sin and I'm going to crucify it in Christ, my own son. I've got it. The symbol of every other world religion, the scales, but the symbol of Christianity is the cross. And it is that kind of idea that causes her, na- her, her song to say, holy is his name, the God who saves sinners. There's no one like him. And we move to the second part of the message here. We see that Mary worships God as a savior and as one who lifts up the humble. Verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So the first thing I'll draw out of this section is that he scatters the proud. He scatters the proud. The scriptures are filled with story after story of God doing this. They begin with this. In the garden, we find a proud couple who in their pride reject the Lord's instructions, take what was forbidden, and what motivated it was not just that it was so pleasing to the eye, though that was part of it, What really, truly motivated it was that they wanted to be, do you remember? Like God. Like God. It was this pride that drove them to their rebellion, and God scattered them from the garden. And God scattered the tower builders, who once again tried to assemble something so that they could get to God. And he scattered them. He sent the flood, which not only scattered, but completely covered the world and a flood of judgment because of the pride of mankind at the time. When Israel rebelled and didn't go into the promised land, they were scattered, a generation of them, out in the wilderness. God scatters the proud, but he lifts up the humble. And even as Mary is making this statement, uh, she's not speaking about her own virtue here, right? Uh, Nobody gets to sing about their own humility and retain it, right? It sort of evaporates in the song itself. Um, what she is quite frankly acknowledging is really truly her lowliness, her very common, simple stature on planet Earth. She is simple, she is young, and they're poor. She's poor. Uh, We're told later on in chapter 2 that eight days after the birth of Christ, uh, that when she and Joseph go to the temple to dedicate him, and to consecrate him, that they brought the offering of two pigeons or two doves, right? This was the acceptable offering of the poor. They were just simple, lowly, humble folks. So she's not exclaiming a virtue here. She's exclaiming the absence of merit. And it's interesting because that is exactly how Christ will be received, has to be received by anyone. It's not that we go to him and say, well, I really deserve this sacrifice. I deserve to be reconciled to God. I've worked really hard in this world. I do nice things. I'm a nice person. God really would be lucky to have me on his team. Nobody comes to a saving knowledge uh, and a saving relationship with God Almighty with that posture. We come in a spirit of humility, which is to say, 
I've got nothing. I know my heart. I know that I'm a sinner through and through. Even if I don't commit the act, I know what I think about. I know what I want to do. I know the motivations of my heart. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm not in right standing with God except that I receive forgiveness from him. That is how a person is received to God and made right before him. In fact, it was Jesus in his own teaching ministry later in Luke 5, he would say this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think Dr. Luke would have smiled hearing that particular uh, recording or as he has that interview with somebody and gets that bit of teaching. You know, Dr. Luke probably had some non-compliant patients along the way and sort of understood, that's right, you got to know you're sick before you can pursue uh, what will bring you health. And in that way, we need to be humble, recognizing our need for Christ before we receive from him uh, his righteousness on our behalf. 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now, some people uh, read the New Testament and think, boy, God really hates the rich. And uh, I'll just simply tell you, no, he doesn't. But he knows all too often that our wealth and our resources get in the way of us seeing our need for him. Uh, It is one of the greatest obstacles. Self-sufficiency, self-righteousness is one of the greatest obstacles to mankind in terms of having a right relationship to God. But God's eye is to the needy. It's to those who know their need for him. I think there's been sort of a longstanding temptation for Christians um, to think uh, of ourselves with a degree of superiority. Even if we wouldn't say it out loud, it still kind of runs around in our mind a little bit. We think of ourselves morally superior to those we walk around planet Earth with. And um, even if it's not said out loud, or even if you wouldn't necessarily agree, agree with that, it's the stench we give off. If we were to interview the world, they would say, yeah, that's how they smell. They come across smug and sounding superior. And if we're not careful, I think any one of us can kind of drift into this sense of, oh yeah, I deserved the gospel. I deserved the sacrifice of Christ. I'm one of the smarter ones. I figured it out. We can begin to pat ourselves on the back and If by any chance you're tempted to fall into that place, then Christian, I have a word from you from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, Brothers and sisters, so he's talking to us. He's talking to to those who are saved, those who are in the family of God. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the things despised, the things that are not, to nullify things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let no one, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, 
you know, if you've got any swagger to yourself about your standing with Christ, let it drop right here. Uh, essentially, God was saying, you know, I'm looking for a really rough ingredient. I'm looking for someone who's, boy, it would be like a miracle if they got their life together. So let me take this rough bit of clay here. This is the person that's going to experience my grace and come into my family. I'm going to do a miracle in them. That's what you and I are. We're the B team. We're the misfits. Because God said, I want to really show my power. I'm going to show it through these humble folks. I love the words of Brennan Manning, one of my, um, I can't say he's one of my favorite authors, but he is an author who had a very profound impact on my life as a college student. One of my favorite quotes of his is this, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am a sinner saved by God and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. I am a sinner saved by God and I didn't do anything to merit that. Uh, and so I love Brennan's boast in the Lord. And Mary is one who boasts similarly in the Lord. His eye is to the needy. And this is an interesting one here. He remembers to be merciful. I love this phrase. Uh, we read it in sort of a, our English understanding of the wording and things. It, it sounds funny like, well, yeah, we know we're supposed to be merciful. And it can be difficult to remember to be merciful. We're supposed to do it. We don't often remember to do it. Uh, and once again, this is not just Mary's lyric here, but she's actually quoting from uh, the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk 3, 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. She's recalling what God has promised to do. She's recalling this earlier word of God here and recognizing that this gift of Jesus is God's remembering to do mercy even as he prepares for wrath for sin. Uh, the Hebrew word here for remember is fascinating uh, in the Old Testament in, in Habakkuk here. It's zakar. And, and it doesn't mean uh, like cognitive memory or like ram. Like I've just got to recall this little tidbit. Uh, it means to act in accordance with. That's the remembering that happens. And so Mary is saying, I see what you're doing here. You are remembering your mercy even in preparation for your coming wrath. You have acted consistently with mercy. You are giving us Christ. And finally here we, we see that God keeps his promises. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And this is an easy thing to say again, right? God keeps his promises. And once again, it's one of those familiar, almost a platitude. Oh yeah, God keeps his promises. No, let me say it this way. God has never not kept his promise. He's never missed a single one. Never once. Never once has God not kept promise. And that's amazing because we live in a world of broken promises. We live in a world where governments were supposed to provide order and instead oppressed people. Or leaders who were elected to serve instead became false or self-serving. Parents failed us. They were supposed to nurture, to protect, to instruct, to be an example. Or spouses who have broken vows. Friends were supposed to be loyal and weren't. We live in a world that's filled with broken promises. 
but God has never broken one. His word is unbreakable. His promise is sure. Uh, Even as we lit the prophecy candle this morning in remembrance that God told us in advance about the coming of Christ, uh, we have this beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That promise is given 700 years before the advent of Christ. And again, as Mary looks down at her belly, she knows with every fiber in her being that God is keeping his promise, that this child is here, that he has come. And what I want to leave you with is just a question here. And that is this, what is your right response to the advent of Christ? If you're not yet a believer, if you've never responded to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, then your right response is really two things. It's to repent of your sin, as we all have to do, and to turn to Christ in saving faith to say that I know in your love, in your mercy, in your grace, you came for me. You came to be a sacrifice that my sin would be crucified in you that your righteousness would be applied to me. The greatest exchange ever. And so if you're not yet a Christian in Jesus, or not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, that's your right response to the Advent, and it is to believe. If you're already a believer, and you've been walking with Christ for a long time, then I would simply say this. You need to respond in adoration and worship to the great and mighty things God has done for you in Jesus And if I could be a little bit sharp right here at the end, I would say, quit letting yourself be so distracted with the things of the world. Sit in awe and reverence of Christ, what God has done for you. Let it affect your heart again. You have to bring your heart before the Lord and say, let it nourish and saturate my heart again so that I not just know it, but I feel it and I live my life around it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the vast amount of material that's in the scriptures, that we find prophecies, that we find teaching, we find um, parables, we find proverbs, and wonderfully we find songs, songs from very ordinary people like Mary, who are responding to your grace and mercy poured out in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that her song would facilitate our worship this season, uh, that they would draw us to you as a Savior either for the first time or in worship and recognition and adoration of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. So may we respond, Lord, as Mary has, loving you and praising you for Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.